when you're placed in a, a new situation or, um, for example, I remember in college, the first day of a class, often the professors would say, here's the requirements for this class. And I think, okay, I want to get through this class. I didn't always have the right attitude. It was get through this class, not necessarily learn what I needed to, but get through it. So what do I need to check off? What, what are the requirements of this? And, and it was really neat when, when it was real simple. There'd be some that give a long list, but there were others that you do this and this and this, and you'll be good. And and I I like that. I I like to keep it simple because I'm stupid. Okay. So it's it it is a, an important principle that although God in His infinite wisdom and infinite power and unlimited in every area. He has made things relatively simple for us. And um, Micah zeroes in on that. God zeroes in on it through Micah. But Micah begins um, his third message, if you please, in this book. And it, it really is a, a courtroom picture. It is... Um, it involves three speakers, and it involves God laying out the charges against Israel, and He invites them then, what's your response to this? Beginning in verse 6 of what we read earlier, they give a response, and then the third speaker, so you have God, you have the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, and then you have the prophet um, Micah as a lawyer, lawyer for the plaintiffs that he is representing. And again, in this situation, God lays open his heart. He proves to the people of Israel why he's doing what he's doing. And... And they then respond in a way that sounds good humanly, but really they, they miss the whole point. Um, some have said in verse 8, which will be our concluding thoughts, but verse 8 gives the finest summary of the content of practical religion to be found in the Old Testament. Now, we often think of the Old Testament as God's anger, God's judgment, but that is in air when you see the, the overriding picture of, of God and His nature in the Old Testament. And we often think of the Old Testament as, well, those are things that don't apply anymore, but this passage is very practical as we'll, we'll seek to say, see today. The, the Jewish rabbis in the early centuries of post-Christ life called 
this passage in, in verse 8 a one-line summary of the whole law. As I said earlier, I like one-line summaries of a whole law. Um, how many of you are familiar with cleft notes? Okay, we speak the same minds probably, okay? These are, those of you that aren't, these are little, little pamphlets that, that give a shortened version of a, of a much bigger book, okay? And I forget what grade I was in, but we had to do book reports, and I came across a, a list of the books we had to choose from, and I saw the Oregon Trail was on that. And I thought, somewhere around our house, there's a cleft notes of the Oregon Trail. So I thought, that's the one. God led me infinitely to this. And, and I, I got the cleft notes, and I, from that, wrote this book report and, and um, did fine with it. It wasn't until later that I ever saw how thick the Oregon Trail book is. How many of you have ever read the Oregon Trail? No one? Neither have I. So, <laughs> and, and I thought, oh my goodness, that teacher thought that I read the Oregon Trail. She probably knew better and just wanted to get me out of there anyway. But... So, I have, as well as is evident here, we all have a tendency, keep it simple. Get it down. I, I love when it comes in reading a book, in conclusion, or to sum it up. And I often think, okay, um, all this to say these three points, and that's probably what you're saying right now. Sum it up, Pastor. <laughs> Give us the points. We're going to get there, all right? But God is bringing this down to an important point. And, and He first of all begins by bringing to them, as picture in a courtroom, and He brings the accusation, verse 3, What have I done? What have I done to weary you in your relationship with Me? Why are you indifferent to me. Why are you not only indifferent, but you're, you're turning away from me? And he, he reminds them of many of the things that he's done for them. He said, I brought you up out of the house of bondage. I've provided for you. I protected you when kings were, were seeking to destroy you. And, and he says... Um, What's the problem here? What have I done to weary you? And, and they replied, in essence, um, saying, well, what is it you want from us, God? Um, shall we come to you with burnt offerings and offer you a yearling calf? Would you be pleased if we bring thousands of gallons of oil and sacrifice to you? Shall we give you 
And it, it's really coming like, God, you are too demanding. Do you want our firstborn? Do you want us to sacrifice our firstborn to you? That was very common practice throughout all pagan religions. And they're familiar with pagan religions. So they're saying, what is it you want? Do you want our firstborn? And, and then Micah steps in and he pleads the case of God in verse 8. And he says, He, God, has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? So he comes to them and he says, You're talking of, of offering the, the best calf, of offering all this wealth that you have, of even offering your firstborn son to the Lord. He says, You're missing the whole point. And, and, this is exactly how we as human beings are. We are willing to give God anything except what He really wants. Our heart, our love, and our devotion. And, and many people today are willing to sacrifice various things for their religion, for their God. But He comes down and He says, This is what I require. God is essentially saying, you act as if what I require is some mystery. In fact, he said, it's no mystery at all. I have shown you clearly what is good, and I have shown you what I require of you. And he begins, first of all, to do justice. This is a, a strict adherence to what is fair, what is even, what is equitable in all dealings with all of our fellow mankind. Not playing favorites, not involved in bribery, not involved in trickery and sleight of hand, but to deal justly, to do justly, fairness and deference especially for those in a weaker social position. It's, it's opposite of violence and oppression and fraud and lying and injustice that he that does go on and describe, has described in Micah. We're not going to look at it. He also describes it in verses 10 through 12 of this chapter. So he says, so... You're acting like you don't know what I want. He says, here's what I want. I, I demand, I require that you do justly to, to everyone. And then he says that you love mercy. Webster in his 1828 dictionary, which I think is the best dictionary that you can find, and you can get it online Easy, but it's a great dictionary. Here's how he defines mercy. Benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers injustices and induces 
an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries, to forego punishment and inflict less than the law demands. In this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy, he says. It is a pity, a compassion, exercised toward those that have offended us. Our memory verse says that um, forbearing one another, when put on kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, when we have been offended, when we have been done wrong. And of course, the great example of this is the Lord. He is long-suffering, great in mercy, forgiving iniquity, and by no means clearing the guilty. In Numbers chapter 14, he says that. So, our Lord is long-suffering, great in mercy. He is willing to forgive iniquity, but by no means clears the guilty. We'll come back and touch on that in just a moment. But you notice what he says, that you love mercy. He didn't say to do mercy. He says to love it, to take delight in mercy. We read in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 18, it says God delights in mercy. To find great pleasure in for granting forgiveness, in helping the poor, in ministering to the sick, in teaching the ignorant, in ministering to bring the wayward back to Christ, to, to have great patience and to delight in it. Man, as, as I looked at this and saw, to love mercy... Most of us do not love mercy. We grant mercy when we have to for the sake of our reputation. But to look for ways to show mercy, we usually aren't looking for ways to show mercy. Looking for ways to, to minister to people that rub us the wrong ways. Looking for ways to... Be a servant looking for ways to love mercy. So he says, don't just show mercy, but to love to show it. Give others the same mercy that you want to receive from God. See, we all want, we all want God to be gracious to us. We all want God to be merciful to us. And he said, the same mercy that you want to receive from God, I want you to love giving that to others. Because God says, unto the merciful, I will show myself merciful. Freely we have received the mercy of God. He says, freely give. So, in your life right now, 
to ask yourself, God, who is it now in my life that, that you want me to show mercy and, and then to work on my attitude to love showing mercy? This is what God requires. And if we're sensitive to the Spirit, He's bringing people to our minds. And you know what? Sometimes it may be people in our own family. Because that's where it begins. The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. And it begins with our own life and our own relationships in that which is closest to it. So he says, I want you to do justice. I want you to be merciful. And not only to be merciful, but he says, I want you to love showing mercy. And then you notice he adds the third part. And to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly is simply to live by faith. Because faith is the antithesis of pride. Pride insists on taking first place. But faith seeks to give God first place. Humility it is a virtue that is required of any that are going to be faithful followers of God. God is a great lover of humility because God is a great lover of truth. And the truth is, you and I have nothing with which to boast in. We have nothing with which to be proud of. Everything that is good in our life is the result of God's grace to us. We have nothing to glory in. That's why Paul said, I am not going to glory in anything except the cross of Christ. I mean, Paul had much that he could have gloried in. Before he was a Christian, after he was a Christian, there there. Hasn't been another church planter like Paul. And the amazing thing is, Paul understand the tr- understood the truth. I am nothing compared to God. And yet at the same time, this to walk humbly carries with it the nature of to walk carefully with your God. To walk circumspectly. To be careful to live the way God wants you to live. In other words, he's saying, to walk humbly with God means to give great attention to your walk with God. It should be the first and most important part of our life. To give great attention to your walk with God. Sad to say... In most lives, it is kind of an add-on. It's something that we have our life and we want to make sure it goes well, so we add on God. What he's saying here is, I want you to do justly, to love mercy, and to give great attention to your walk with God. And if you do that, you will have a spirit of humility You will have a spirit of a learner spirit. Humility is manifested in desiring to learn. 
And, and he says, it is, it is imperative that you give great careful attention, circumspectly deal with your relationship with God. What, what steps, what practices do you bring into your life because my, my walk with God has to be number one, I need to keep it fresh, I need to keep it alive, I need to build a relationship with God more than anything else, and so there are certain things I will do, certain things I won't do. I am committed to seeking first the kingdom of God because then all these other things that demand my attention, He'll give me wisdom in them. He'll give me strength. He'll give me direction. He'll shepherd me. He'll empower me. But He's saying here, you must carefully give attention to your walk with God and that means when you spend time in God's presence there will be a spirit of humility that reigns in your life. And the problem when we're filled with pride is we haven't been in God's presence enough. We're impressed with ourselves. We're comparing ourselves with others. We are... um, filled up with ourself, but when we come to see God and who He is, it truly has a humbling effect on us. So, it is not complicated to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It is not complicated, but it is impossible without the life of Christ dwelling within us. Now there are many religions today and many um, erroneous Christianity types that will say, this is what God wants you to do. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And they they don't deal with the aspect that this is impossible without new life in Christ. There is no way the natural man will love showing mercy. We must have the power of God dwelling within us to do that. These requirements of the law are impossible to be fulfilled in and of ourselves. It must be through the Spirit of God empowering us to be doers of the Word. There must be new birth. And because of chapter 7 and verse 18 in particular, directing your attention there, he gives, this is what is required. And then it's like, man, I I try to do justly, but I show favoritism here. And, and I try to get ahead here by working things to my advantage. And I don't really love showing mercy. And um, I think I'm better than I really am. That's our natural state. So what, what hope is there for me? And all of these prophets that God raised up, God 
brings severe judgment. He brings severe messages. But he, he ends with the message of hope. Because of who God is, there is hope. And remember, last week we said, Micah's message is, who is a God like our God? He is a God of judgment. There is no God that brings judgment like God does. There, he is a God of justice. There is no God that brings justice like our God. And there is no God who forgives sins and is able to forgive sins like our God does. And notice, he concludes with that. Verse 18, who is a God like you? So he says, God, there's no one at all like you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So Micah is saying, this is what God requires. And it's overwhelming. It's like, I can't do that. But he says, but here is a God who will empower you, who will forgive all your iniquities through the blood of Jesus Christ and bury your sins in the depths of the deepest sea so that you no longer have to bear the guilt of it. We sang earlier, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Everything in your past that you wish you could go back and change and undo is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Not only is it nailed to the cross, it is buried in the depths of the deepest sea because of the mercy and love of God. And Micah calls attention to this and he says, this is what our God is. He is full of compassion, pardoning iniquity. He delights in mercy. And because of who He is, we can delight in mercy. Because of his work in our lives, we can have the grace of God abundant in our lives to do justly, to indeed love showing mercy, and to circumspectly, carefully walk humbly with our God. God pardons iniquity. He delights in mercy. He has compassion on us. And he casts our sin into the depths of the deepest sea. See, the Lord Jesus Christ gave a, a great parable on this. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee was filled with pride. The publican came with humility, depended on God's mercy, humbled himself before the Lord, and was forgiven. The Pharisee, on the other hand, informed God of how good he was. And because he was so good and filled with pride, 
that God was obligated to give him eternal life? And God says, no. You must do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And you cannot do that in and of yourself. You must call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And then the Spirit of God dwells within us, teaches us, here's an opportunity for mercy. But I can't do it. I'll give you the strength as we depend on Him. And as we depend on Him and walk in obedience, we don't, we don't then say, wow, look at me. Look how great a Christian I am. We understand I couldn't have responded that way were it not for the grace of God. All praise to God. It's not us. It's God. Anything good is God. It is so important for us to realize that and to realize what He's called us to. You know, sometimes we think, I I just wish God would, would tell me what He wants me to do. And He says... Haven't I told you to do justly, to love mercy? How can I show mercy today and to walk humbly with our God? It's so important that we understand it's not complicated, but without Christ, it's impossible. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have as believers a renewed zeal to honor You by walking in Your Spirit. And as we walk in Your Spirit, that we would love justice, to do justice, to love mercy, and that we would, because of love for You and Your love for us, that we would carefully guard our walk with You and in humility that we would embrace You in everything. Lord, I pray that if there are individuals here today that have been trying to do the right thing but have never humbled themselves to call on You for forgiveness, Lord, that today they would call upon You. And then, Lord, I pray for every one of us as believers. It's so easy for us to get sidetracked into what we're supposed to be doing. Lord, may we live justly. Lord, may we love mercy. May we be compassionate. May we be individuals that care for others as You care for us. And then, Lord, I pray that we would embrace a spirit of humility as we kneel before You, as we walk before You, as we work with You. So, Lord, help us to not be weary in dying to self and living for You. Lord, may You increase and may we decrease. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.